Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's the 71st episode, and I am here after a wild Singapore Grand Prix. The Red Bull Racing perfect season is over. But before we get to that, first, a quick reminder to check out the link tree in the description. It has links to pages like all the platforms you can find this podcast, my YouTube channel, Break Bias Twitter, and TikTok. It has my email address if you'd like to contact me, as well as my personal Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Now, let's talk about what happened around the Marina Bay Circuit. No need to ask, he's a smooth operator. Smooth operator. Forza Ferrari again. But this time, they get it done just 14 rounds later than last season. Because, uh, <laughs> of course, Ferrari won the first race of the 2022 season. They were supposed to be the team to take the fight to Red Bull this season. That did not happen. So, Ferrari arriving a bit late to the party. And uh, we're losing, basically, an entertaining season of F1 because of it. But they're back on the top step with Carlos Sainz. It was a magic weekend for Ferrari and Sainz. Signs led every session since FP2, and in FP1 was just behind his teammate. Honestly, describing this race to someone who who didn't watch it is kind of funny, because you know Red Bull wasn't in the running, so that sounds amazing, obviously. Um, but until the late VSC, that allowed Mercedes to feasibly go on a two-stop strategy, that aggressive strategy that saw them close up on the final laps. Um, Signs did a pretty good job of just making the race kind of boring. You know, you could you would say, all right, if I were if I were to tell you that Red Bull is gonna com- gonna be completely out of the running, you know, Signs was gonna start on pole, but there was gonna be three teams. I mean, Piastri wasn't really in it, so five drivers and three teams all fighting viably for the win, and the four of them to be separated by you know a total of two seconds with five laps to go. You would be like, oh my god, that's an that's an amazing race. Um, and I guess that part of it was the the ending part. Um, but until that VSC, basically, what happened sounded great on paper, but it didn't actually play out that amazingly. Just be, just because Signs was in super tire management mode, which forced all the other drivers to just kind of, it, it was kind of processionary, right? So. Yeah, Ferrari, they started Leclerc on the soft to try to jump Russell at the start because Russell qualified on the front row next to Sainz and Leclerc obviously in third. That was successful. Then because the two Ferraris were uh, at, at the front, they could just cleverly control the race on a track that was you know, very hot and difficult to overtake on. So when the first safety car came out, Leclerc, that's kind of when things unraveled for him a little bit. He lost ground. Uh, they had a double stack, and he lost ground there. Signs pretty much lost his rear gunner because they were sacrificing Leclerc for just someone to, you know, end up on the top step. So I don't think Ferrari minded too much. Um, but yeah, that kind of ruined Leclerc's race. He came out behind Norris, but ahead of Hamilton, and then he almost ran into the back of Norris right at the restart, and that was when Leclerc dropped back to P5, and that basically just secured. A P5 finish for him. Of course, he inherited it uh, P4 in the end because of what happened to Russell. But yeah, like I said, don't think Ferrari minded that too much. They were just trying to get on the top step with one driver, and they did. But Sainz had to do it himself. And it was mostly, you know, a procession, like I said, because of his genius. Russell couldn't pass Sainz. Norris couldn't catch Russell. And Hamilton, you know, couldn't do anything to Norris. And Signs clearly knew this, and that was what was so smart from him and the team. But mostly him, especially in, in the end, because the team's strategy with Leclerc, like that, was more so Ferrari's, you know, decision, because they knew the weakness that they have is on their tires, which is basically what what uh, left them with zero chance and zero defense against the Red Bulls and Monza. Um, so Signs early on, which is an ultra tire management mode, like I said pushed ever so slightly when he needed to just to stay ahead of Russell and this also kept the pack really tight because he wasn't just driving off into the distance and with the overtaking being so difficult in Singapore and how much following cars ahead of you you know affects your tires um, and it was a bit of a difficult race on tires if, if people could overtake this would have been a two-stop I think the Mercedes proved that 
Um, but yeah, they basically just nullified any undercut or two-stop strategy until that late VSE. It just wasn't an option because of how tight the pack was. So that VSE comes out for Ocon's Flaming Alpine, and that, that tire management definitely came in handy, but it did kind of ruin their whole strategy. So Mercedes, you know, they hop onto those fresh mediums. They saved for the race. Um, they dispatch Leclerc really quickly and catch Lando and Carlos pretty rapidly. But then again, Sainz pulls off just this 3000 IQ genius masterclass, whatever you want to call it. He pushes, but he also stays just in that enough management mode where he keeps Norris in DRS range. Norris can't get past him. And, you know, either of them on their own, say Sainz just took off because he had more pace than Norris. Uh, Russell, who was ahead of Hamilton, and they were both flying on these new mediums, they would have just got past Norris, they would have got to the back of Sainz, and probably passed Sainz as well. Um, but the fact that, you know, Sainz was able to use Norris as just a bit of a defense, of course, helped Norris, but it also helped his own race massively. Um, because yeah, they probably would have had that same fate that Leclerc faced is just the two Mercedes came on him so fast and they dispatched him pretty quickly. I mean, I think they both did it within a lap. So yeah, not only does, you know, it help signs defend though, of course, um, keeping Norris in that DRS range. It also is bad news for the Mercedes tire life. And I think that also manifested because Russell, after that initial, uh, chance passing Norris, which he didn't do successfully. It seemed like he didn't really have that same tire delta to to pass Norris that he needed, and that's exactly you know my point. Is like even if at the biggest you know delta there was, and by delta I guess it's a little bit of fancy term for difference in pace. So let's say at one point Russell was going two seconds quicker than Signs on the track you know, keeping him behind for a couple laps and heating up his tires and changing that difference to like a one second delta um, makes a big difference in trying to overtake on this circuit. So yeah, honestly, I think this was just probably the smartest win that I've ever seen. Um, you know, with the, 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 the full situation and the car that he was in, he probably shouldn't have won. Um, but signs just completely outsmarted the field so, yeah, take that, Ferrari haters. I mean, is Ferrari strategy improving under Vasseur? I don't know, because I think they did the best that they possibly could in Monza. Yeah, there was a bit of um, a bit of a scandal. I guess scandal's not really the word. Um, a bit of drama, I guess, um, between the Ferrari drivers battling each other in Monza, and that could have been uh, pretty bad. That definitely could have ended in tears, um, but it didn't. And then this was just brilliant stuff um from from them so yeah and also let's defend Leclerc a little bit he ended up finishing in p4 obviously because he inherited that from Russell's crash but he would have been p5 and he would have he actually almost lost out to Max Verstappen at the line um but he finished 20 21 seconds off of the lead um and you know signs may have had a small edge on him this weekend but uh Carlos had clear air and that goes a long way and he was not defending from faster cars like Leclerc had to he had to yeah he had to worry about Norris a little bit but he knew that he always had the straight line speed and he could push in the right spots to still look after his tires so it wasn't the same sort of battling that Leclerc had to go through so that's why Leclerc fell off just those battles and just the different type of racing that he had to do with with the Mercedes, I think, really kind of chewed into his tire life, and that's what ruined him. Not to mention, I'm not sure when he went almost went into the back of Lando, he might have kind of screwed his tires there right uh, as well, um, because he did kind of start falling off even a little bit then. So yeah, his tires were just finished, um, and that is basically why he almost fell into the clutches of Verstappen so congratulations to Ferrari but let's move on to Verstappen and of course his team all that fighting in the end the Red Bulls were nowhere to be found off the pace all weekend well at least in qualifying they actually were decent in the race but a shock double Q2 exit at the hands of Liam Lawson of all people Lawson qualifies or he goes 10th fastest in, in Q2, Max Verstappen 11th. Crazy, crazy stuff. But honestly, why I, I'm, I'm thinking why even break down Red Bull's race? 
let's focus on why this even happened in the first place. Why were they so bad here? I didn't see this coming. I thought, in, at least in my head, and, uh, and that was evident by my Grid Rebel team, Brad's bets. I thought this is going to be so unpredictable to know who's going to be the quickest because I also didn't see Ferrari being that good here. Yeah, they're still good with the slow corners, but I, I really thought this would be more of a Mercedes or McLaren track. Um, and I thought Red Bull is the only team that's for sure just going to go ahead. I, I can't predict, so let's just go with Red Bull. And Red Bull was terrible. So, long story short, basically, um, I'm going to get into it, though. But the brief summary is that Red Bull even recognized themselves that this would be a tough track for them because, essentially, they couldn't run their car at the desired ride height. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, Brad, what are you talking about? I don't even know the slightest thing about how these cars work. Well, I hear you. I'm not a master either, but I'm going to try to explain it in the most digestible way I possibly can because it is a hell of a lot more complicated than just the ride height, obviously. There is a great article, though. I will give credit because some of the information I provide I learned from from him. So Mark Hughes of the race explaining why the Red Bulls well, were, su- were suddenly undrivable. Some sort of title like that, I believe. Um And it's not because of the technical directive, guys. I will say that too. If you think that this was because of the flexi wing technical directive, you're wrong. Red Bull's going to prove that next weekend. I I mean, I guess I can't guarantee it, but everyone is basically saying they would be absolutely shocked if Red Bull's off the pace in Suzuka. This was clearly a circuit-specific thing because part of what makes Red Bull so good is that not only do they have this genius floor design, of course, Their suspension also allows them to run their car lower to the ground than the competition can without having the porpoising problems that we saw last year. And from what this article is saying is that that is basically everyone. The competition is the entire field. If they tried to run their car as low as the Red Bulls do, they would bounce. And there's also a rule about how much you can bounce too. So You can't have this massive porpoising or else you have to change your car. So Red Bull is like, okay, because of Singapore's unique challenge where it's a rough surface, it's it's a bouncy track, uh, it would cause their car to bottom out and actually make the car illegal. They had to raise it, which just weakened their car overall because the lower you can run your car, and this was a thing that Mercedes, you know, the issue that they ran into because on their simulations in 2022, they ran their car super low to the ground and it, you know, the simulations show that they had incredible downforce levels. However, they didn't have the proper, you know, suspension that was able to handle the porpoising. So that's something they obviously still haven't really figured out. And that's what I mean. It's a hell of a lot more complex than even I'm trying to to break down here. Um, but yeah, raising the ride height overall, you're just going to be a little bit worse, also a little bit draggier. So it was just overall that was going to be bad news for the Red Bull. But it's more than just that as well because throughout practice, they also just couldn't set up their car. And that was the reason that they lost the Brazilian Grand Prix last year. They had the car in the wrong setup window and... Essentially, they found something in FB3. Overnight, they showed up to that morning practice session, and they were actually pretty good. I thought Red Bull, you know, might be back here. They're, they might not be on uh, on pole, but they're going to be there in the race. But they didn't quite feel like they had, like, you know, they're, they're, they've been dominating all year. They don't want to be just close on pace with the other teams. They want to be ahead. So they went aggressive in preparation for qualifying, but it ended up being too aggressive and it ended up just setting them in the wrong direction. And then park Fermi conditions means that once you, you know, step a wheel, um, you put a wheel on the track in qualifying, you can't touch the car. That setup is locked in for qualifying and the race. So that's basically what ruined their entire weekend because their grid position was horrible. Um, felt like they were driving on ice and that's what we saw. We saw just an absolute shock Q2 um, elimination for, for both drivers. And then in the race, the strategy just got completely ruined by the safety car. They were super quick on the mediums. I think in the race, their problems kind of just went away um, because 
despite Max finishing, you know, 20 seconds behind the lead, had they been a bit luckier, I think Max could have easily been at the back of, of the that Mercedes, Ferrari, and Lando Norris fight instead of 20 seconds adrift of it. They were that fast on the last stint. It just, yeah, didn't work out at all. So there's still plenty I, I've left out. Read that article if this is something that interests you, understanding really why Red Bull wasn't fast. It, it's great stuff, but that's my break bias tech breakdown, I guess. Um that's probably honestly the most techie that I've ever gotten on this podcast, to be honest, which maybe is a bit misleading since I'm called the name of this podcast is something that is, you know, a very uh, not uh, how do I even say it like a, the a break the break bias balance on the wheel is a setting that is not even very famous setting. Yet that's what my podcast is named after. So you'd think I would uh, understand uh, the tech a little bit better, but I guess I don't. Anyway, <laughs> I don't have that expertise, but I try to learn it where I can. And I think I have like a basic understanding of it. But anyway, Red Bull uh, was also busy in the stewards room this weekend. Max had three penalties in qualifying. They were all a bit silly. One was because he was just parked in the pit at the end of the pit lane for a long time, but they decided that was no big deal. Then a couple impedings, reprimands that he had to pay fines for. So no grid penalties for Max. And then Checo had a post-race penalty for causing a collision with Albon. If you didn't see that incident, um, it was it was pretty shocking racing. And it probably cost uh, the Williams team uh, a couple points. Alex reckons he could have been uh, P8 had Perez not taken him out of the race. So, yeah, uh, basically Perez just sent one up the inside into a 90-degree left-hander and completely T-boned Alex like it was pretty bad. Although Perez, after the race, was like, oh, yeah, it was nothing. It was just a racing incident. I don't know. If you look at the onboards, like, from Perez's side, you're like, I'm like, what were you thinking? It was pretty bad, in my opinion. So that's why I got the five-second penalty. But I think he finished, like, 13 seconds ahead of, of P9, I think who I think was Liam Lawson. And Piastri was like, I want to say like seven seconds ahead of Checo. So it didn't change his position whatsoever. So he still finished in P8. But back to the front of the field, we got to break down this podium because it was a Carlando. I love the Carlando podiums. I, I can't remember one since I want to say Monaco 2021. That one was famous when they did kind of like their podium interview together. But yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't remember another Carlando podium more recent than that one. There easily may have been, but anyway, McLaren brought some upgrades to Lando's car um, and seeing that car qualifying on the second row and then finish, you know, P2 in the race must've felt pretty good for, for that team. Unfortunately for Oscar, he didn't have the upgrades and then he was also unlucky to just get completely screwed by the red flag in Q1 that was brought up by Lance Stroll. Um, that, you know, put him in P17. He didn't get a chance to do his lap. So I'll say this about both their races, though, because they had to deal with completely different things. Lando fighting at the very sharp end and then Oscar in a completely, you know, slog of a midfield fight. They both got the maximum of of their days you know that's what this driver pairing is going to do for years probably if they do end up staying together i know there's a lot of lando to red bull rumors for 2025 um the win wasn't on for lando but you know he had just enough left to defend um george in that crucial you know race defining moment um and it was it was kind of reminiscent of, of what was going on in um in uh, Silverstone with with Lewis Hamilton when the tire you know offset it should have favored Lewis Lewis should have been able to get past Lando but he couldn't George couldn't get past Lando here just some really really clever defending he was of course helped by Carlos but still he had to he had to put on the defense and McLaren straight line speed right there was actually pretty impressive you know no DRS there but he had just enough you know uh, grunt um, with with the with the power unit to stay ahead of George there, and that is what defined the race. I think if George gets that move done, he passes Carlos and wins the race. But for Oscar, you know, it was a completely different, tough day battling through that tight midfield. But where does he end up in probably the best position possible without making any mistakes? You know, there was actually a, a funny moment 
after the race on the F1 post-race show. So not not the Sky Sports F1 checkered flag show or whatever it's called. And it was with him and Will Buxton, Piastri and Will Buxton. And essentially, they they just basically set up this little desk in the middle of the paddock and drivers walk by and stuff. And they're just talking with like a reserve driver. He was with Jack Dewin this weekend. That's Alpine's, you know, young driver reserve. He's, a, he's an F2. Anyway, they're talking. Piastri shows up, picks up a microphone and you could see Will being like, oh, and here's this guy. And he like looks at his uh, little page and Oscar's like, you don't know where I finished, did you? And he's like, no, no, I know where you finished. I was just trying to remember where you started. <laughs> and it was like kind of this funny little moment. But I was thinking, honestly, if that was my job and Oscar came up to me after that race, after basically watching the front be within two seconds of each other the entire race and then this guy just comes up and he gained 10 positions in the race i would have not had a single clue what he did so i i I don't really blame will there but i guess that is sort of his job he should uh know a little bit more of our analyze people's races but uh yeah kind of funny like oscar kind of knew and then uh i think will even said like yeah kind of like a long day for you whatever and oscar was like uh, no, the first few laps were actually pretty spicy. Uh, <laughs> definitely pointing to the fact that like you just didn't know you didn't he didn't watch Oscar's race today. It was it was funny. Also, a funny moment pre-race. Just since we're talking about Oscar Piastri funny moments with uh, Martin Brundle on his on his grid walk. So this is Sky Sports, and Brundle asks him some question about how it's going to be a tough day with his qualifying results, and Oscar's in the middle of his answer, and he just goes, "Oh, Esteban, Esteban." Happy birthday, Esteban! And then he, Brundle turns back and Oscar's just gone. He's like, if you're not going like, to pay attention to my answer, I'm just going to leave. And uh, they even uh, caught up on Twitter afterwards. I think Piastri put like, at Martin Brundle, uh, you know, we'll finish that interview in Japan or something. And Brundle had a funny response to it too. So if you have Twitter or X, um, you can check that out because it's, it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, look out Aston Martin. McLaren is coming. I think this is going to be a very strong stretch of races for McLaren. I can't see any of the remaining tracks being an issue for them, honestly. Or I shouldn't say any of the remaining tracks, but like five in a row here that are going to be just amazing for them. Their strengths are the fast corners, right? And what are the next races? Japan, fast corners. Qatar, loads of them. Texas, Coda has some big fast corners. Mexico, yup. Brazil, all medium speed, but kind of like Mexico, the altitude um, just helps that straight line speed deficit. That's why we saw, I think, you know, uh, uh, Mercedes be so strong in Mexico and Brazil last year because their 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 problem was they weren't as fast on the straights as Red Bull, but that wasn't as much of an issue in Brazil. Their downforce levels were actually pretty decent. Um so, yeah, I think McLaren could be very, very strong in this entire stretch. Then it gets to Vegas and Abu Dhabi. Those races might not be so great for them, but Vegas is a complete unknown, and I think they'll be fine in Abu Dhabi. So we'll see. This team has to be looking forward to the stretch on the calendar. I know I will certainly be using them all over my grid rival squad for sure. Um, and I guess the last little piece on McLaren here, they also unveiled their stealth livery, I think they called it this weekend. Um I'll say I liked it. It's not their best work. Like their chrome livery and Silverstone I liked better. Um, they had the triple crown livery, I think, in Monaco. And then 2021 Monaco, the golf livery was was fantastic. It's actually not surprising, or it is surprising, I should say, that it's not their actual livery for the year with all the black uh, and exposed carbon we have on the cars this year. But speaking of golf livery, 2021 Monaco, Williams... Also looking amazing here. I'm not going to break down their race because I usually pick about five teams um, and they didn't have that amazing or interesting of a race. So I will say, yeah, their their golf livery was absolutely stunning. Um, the racing suits looked amazing. I arguably liked it more than the 2021 Monaco McLaren one. I know that'll trigger some people, but I thought it was so cool how they introduced those golf colors, but they still had a bit of the Williams identity with like those triangular shapes on it. I thought it just looked so clean. I wish this would be their, their, you know, delivery all the time. It was so nice. I, I, I personally loved it, but yeah, let's move on to the rest of the podium because it was rounded out by Lewis Hamilton joining, you know, he joined Sainz and Norris, but it shouldn't have really been Lewis, right? It should have been his teammate, George Russell, 
Seemed to have about a few tents on Lewis this entire weekend. George was in there with a shot at pole position. He was quick in the race, but all went wrong for him on the last stint, and more specifically, the last lap where he crashed out by tagging the wall with his right front wheel. Just a lapse in concentration is what it seemed like to me. Maybe a bit of frustration seeping in, but credit to Mercedes they were clever to give themselves that opportunity with a different tire set to their immediate rivals you know they kept that extra set of mediums from their allocation and practice it, it it was amazing it gave them that opportunity to pit under the VSC not lose any positions and then chase down the slower lead cards uh cars rather with huge tire life offset but on that final stint I have to say Lewis was the one who was on Fuego, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a little Lewis fanboy. I mean, they both get onto the mediums on lap 45, all right? The gap was five seconds. George Russell, five seconds ahead of Lewis Hamilton, and, you know, supposedly this is arguably one of the tightest, um, you know, uh, teammate battles in the field. George was quicker this weekend, too, but Lewis was taking five-tenths a lap you know, out of George, and then is in his DRS range by lap 53, seven, eight laps later, taking just massive chunks out of George and doing it consistently. It was really, really impressive. I mean, Lewis was flying. So the question was for everyone, would Lewis have won if he was ahead of George? You know, he came out five seconds ahead of George and was chasing down that lead pack. It would have been all about that failed switch back on Norris that George tried to pull off there um, that was on the new straight, actually. And that was really the only moment that George had, right? I mean, I think I think where it gets a little tricky is that because if Lewis was five seconds ahead, it would have been Lewis catching them sooner, right? It would, Lewis would have caught Leclerc sooner and passed him, and then he would have caught the other – the the lead pack sooner with with uh, Lando and Carlos so if he had been there sooner and had more tires to push with those guys on old hards Carlos and Lando may have had to use more of their tires to stay ahead and they may have fallen off a bit more um, so that part is hard to gauge um, but I think what makes it really tough is that just how Carlos defended I'm not sure if either Mercedes even the quicker Lewis at the time had the, like you would have had to have so much more traction. The McLaren looked good on straight line speed. It would have been really tough, but it does seem like most people believe that he could have done it. So a shame. Um, I would have exploded for win 104. Um, and some people are pointing towards that. This is an example of Mercedes. If they were in the title fight, their drivers would be just taking points off each other. And that is why it is better to have someone like Max Verstappen, and Sergio Perez in the same team because they're not taking points off each other. All those points are going to max, and it's an easy driver's championship for the lead driver in the team. So in the end, though, even if George didn't tag the wall, Mercedes, even though this strategy looked to be great, they ended up giving up P2 and P4 for P3 and P4. Of course, it ended up being just a P3 because of George's mistake. But I have to say, the F1 world thanks Mercedes for going for the win. They made the race so exciting. And I guess Red Bull deserves some credit, too, for being shite. So the last little piece here, usually I do teams and focus on both drivers, but I'm going to go just Liam Lawson. I I am loving this little storyline here because Lawson also deserves some credit for making this race one of the best of the year, probably the best of the year. His first points in F1 in his third F1 race, his second full weekend. And because there was no New Zealand Grand Prix and the Australian Grand Prix is already come and gone, this was the closest thing that he's going to get to a home race. And what made this race even more kind of interesting for him is there's this amazing story that when Lawson was younger, it was his favorite race growing up, this Singapore Grand Prix and he said, you know, it was because of it was F1's first night race. Kids think the night races look cool. I thought it looked cool too when I first entered Formula One, or not entered. I sound like I'm racing or I'm a part of a team when I first started following Formula One. Um, 
and you know he loved it on the F1 games. I can't really relate to that. I don't love Singapore on the F1 game, but anyway, this is what melted the hearts of F1 fans. He said, "Quote: My dad actually used to promise me every year that he would take me to the Singapore GP, and in the end, we never went. But he's going to be coming to the Grand Prix this weekend, so actually, I'm taking him. And what does he go do?" He just now qualifies the reigning world champion to squeak into Q3 and then scores his first F1 points. No big deal. Not, a, not too shabby of a result. I mean, what a legend. Incredible stuff. Um, more on him and AlphaTauri after the results because Carlos Sainz, P1. I finally get to move Max Verstappen out of this spot on my notes. It's a great day. P2 Lando, P3 Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, a distant P4 followed closely by Max Verstappen in P5, then a strong drive to P6 from Pierre Gasly, though I think, just quickly on Alpine, Ocon was actually the better driver this weekend, super unlucky, um, in classic Alpine fashion to uh, DNF out of what could have been another great result for them. A lot of points left on the table from them this year. Then it was Piastri in P7, great recovery from P17, as I mentioned. Um, P8, Sergio Perez. P9 was Liam Lawson, of course, and then that last point went to K-Mag and the Haas team back in the points uh, for them is huge. It's been a long time. So driver standings, Max Verstappen still sits way ahead on 374 points. He extends the gap to Sergio Perez, who's still on 223 that's a massive gap. Max will be wrapping this up in no time. Lewis Hamilton jumps Fernando Alonso to P3, the first big change we have seen near the top of the standings in a while. So Hamilton, 10 points ahead of Alonso, who is in fourth now. Carlos Sainz makes a big jump up the table, too. He is now only 28 points behind Fernando Alonso. He could enter the top four very soon, the way the Aston Martin is performing. Then it's Charles Leclerc, uh, who is about... 19 points off of signs and then it's a further uh 14 points back to george russell at 109 and lando norris is closing in on his uh, british pal there norris only 12 points behind russell so that entire you know from norris to science is all within about 15 20 points of each other then it's a huge gap 50 points down to lance stroll i can't even remember the last time he has scored a more than one or two points in a weekend of course, he didn't even take part in the race because he had a massive shunt in quality. Then it's Pierre Gasly rounding out the top 10, only two points behind Stroll. To think that an Alpine is almost ahead of one of these Aston Martins that were so good at the beginning of the year, a clear second fastest, it's pretty shocking. Piastri, three points behind Gasly to enter the top 10. Now looking at the constructors, Red Bull, almost 600 points. They actually had a distant chance of securing the team title this weekend, um, but only scored 14 points, so they sit at 597. Then a massive, massive gap to Mercedes. Um, tough blow losing George from the race and the constructors. They're at 289, and Ferrari breathing down their necks now at 265. They closed in with the huge weekend, only 24 points back from Merck. Then Aston Martin, completely out of that fight now, 217. They need to worry about keeping the gap to McLaren. McLaren still 102 points back. Not sure there's going to be enough races to make that you know huge um, jump in the standings, but who knows the way Aston Martin was shocking here. Alpine, 81. Don't think they're going to be able to catch McLaren. Seems way out of reach now. Uh, then it's Williams at 21. Haas at 12, getting one point. Separates them from Alfa Romeo a little bit. They're still on 10. And then Alfa Tauri, they scored two points here. So they're up to five. Liam Lawson literally carrying that team now because Yuki Tsunoda, again, DNF from the race. Lawson has been by himself to try and score points for this team the past two race weekends. So make that make sense. So before I review or preview, rather, the Japanese Grand Prix, a little bit of driver market news, and I wanted to just kind of cover off the race first before I went into here. Usually, I start with news, or I would have included this in my recap, but it's just it's nothing to do with the Singapore Grand Prix, really. So, I wanted to just leave it to the end of the review here. Guan Yu Zhou, I didn't catch this in my in my preview. He signs on for another year, so he's going to drive for Sauber next year, not Alfa Romeo. 
So that leaves now three seats in question. That's it. What a lame, silly season, right? I mean, after last year, I think maybe we were due for a year like this. And we have had four people drive for AlphaTauri this year. So I guess that's where things could get a little spicy, right? And the other remaining seat for 2024 is that of Logan Sargents, who is by no means safe, especially after another mistake costing uh, a front wing for the team this weekend. I believe these seats are actually a little bit more connected than people may realize, and a domino effect, if you will, could be in store. First, Alpha Tauri needs to make the first call. Three drivers for two seats, and this is how I see it playing out. The way Lawson is performing right now, to me, and I don't think Red Bull necessarily agrees with this because they might be a little bit afraid of, you know, another Nick DeVries situation, although Nick DeVries was not a Red Bull junior, so they should know. A hell of a lot more about Liam, plus the evidence in Japan is there. I do think it's a bit different, but I just I, I don't know what's in Red Bull's head or how at Marco's head, whoever's making that decision. I think Liam has to be in a seat next year, right? I mean, the way he's performing, he's 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 almost made you rethink Yuki Sonoda's season. He he had such a good first half, Yuki. And now what Liam is doing and an albeit better AlphaTauri. This AlphaTauri is more competitive than it was at the beginning. So there is that important caveat, I guess. But Liam has has done what Logan has failed to do all season already. So if, if they didn't give Liam a chance now, it's just like they're, I think they're going to be at threat of losing him altogether. So if they want to put Daniel back in the car for this season, I feel like, they're not going to abandon Daniel. I almost feel like Daniel might be the safest of the three. Unless Daniel does come back, he gets a few races to get up to speed where, you know, the hand's not an excuse and then he's terrible. Unless something like that and they literally do leave it to, like, the last race of the season to make the decision. I could maybe see something like that playing out. But as of right now, I think Daniel might arguably be the safest one. I feel like they really do want to give him a shot because ultimately he might actually have the best chance of being in the Red Bull seat of these three drivers. I think that ship has sailed for Yuki Tsunoda. That's never going to happen. So if it's not going to happen, why why give him the seat in AlphaTauri? Uh, the issue is, is that Yuki has had a decent season, and they have said that they do value some experience in the team. Yuki is the you know seasoned driver in the team, even though Ricardo has more F1 experience. Ricardo's new to AlphaTauri, pretty much because his days in Toro Rosso, that was a completely different team back then. So it's, it doesn't count. So you could argue, okay, Daniel can replace that experience factor. Um, even though Lawson has had more races than Ricardo has in the AlphaTauri at this point, I think Ricardo and Lawson is going to be the lineup for next year. Sonoda becomes available. Now with the season Sonoda's had Logan, could either just start performing and Williams bring him back or Logan continues to kind of falter a little bit, doesn't make the step that Williams is looking for and they could pursue someone like Mick Schumacher or of course Yuki Tsunoda, which I think would be a great option for them and be a legitimate, you know, um, point scoring threat in that team. I think that's a great decision because if I think the only one that would, that would be kind of, shitty for Williams is that if Ricardo became available I don't think Ricardo goes there I think Ricardo arguably even hangs it up um but if they expose Liam which I think would be a huge mistake I would be all over trying to get Liam Lawson if I was Williams so it's tough if, if Logan continues to perform they're going to keep Logan or sorry if if Logan starts to perform they're going to keep him if he continues to underperform it's a bit of a question mark. They might still keep him anyway because I don't think they want to immediately, um, you know, terminate the contract of one of their junior drivers, the first one that they've actually brought up arguably ever. I'm not actually sure if they've ever had their own junior driver make it to Formula 1. Bottas, Rosberg, I don't know if those count. or Yeah, I, I'm not really – I don't have a whole lot of young driver history, to be honest. So, yeah, I think – Williams likes, likely waits it out to make that decision later into the season for, you know, to evaluate Logan and then also for AlphaTauri related reasons. But I think 
AlphaTauri's decision is going to weigh on Williams's decision, and I think it would be amazing for Williams to get Liam Lawson or to get Yuki Tsunoda. And I swear to God, if Liam ends up on the sidelines, I think that is absolutely shocking because I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm sorry. I wasn't sold by Nick DeVries last year, I will say. I thought his performance was great. In his one opportunity, he did exactly what he needed to do to get a seat. And then I do think he was let go too early. However, I think Liam has already proven that DeVries wasn't up to sniff. So Red Bull didn't make the wrong decision, or I guess AlphaTauri. Liam is proving that he is the one who belongs. Three races, he's he's improved in each one, and he's already scored. He is one point behind their lead driver. So it makes no sense. Liam's got to be in the seat. If they don't do that, then shame on Red Bull, honestly. So prize demise and surprise time now. Prize has to be Carlos Sainz or Ferrari, right? I've given it to Carlos because I think there is one extra little layer that makes this an even bigger dub for him. Are we sure that Charles Leclerc is the number one driver in that team anymore? I mean, Sainz's second half so far has been actually sensational. And some of you may think, okay, well, you know, what was so special about Zandvoort? I'm telling you, that was an amazing drive from him in the Netherlands, in Monza, to out-qualify Charles to defend like that. I think he actually may have been a little bit slower in race trim, but that's just because he gave it everything defending from Max Verstappen to try and get that win. Um, I think that's what kind of cost him in the end on pace, and that's why Leclerc almost got him. But, of course, Sainz still grabbed the podium, and then here, Sainz was just better, the smarter driver. He, he possesses skills that Charles just doesn't have. Charles may have that extra bit of raw pace in him, but Sainz ain't making the mistakes that he was making early last season he has come a long way in this team he seems a lot more comfortable in the car right now signs you could argue is the lead driver in the team right now so that is why he gets the prize here not just the team as a whole although the team that that took down this red bull you know mighty uh uh, season deserves a ton of credit so ferrari is definitely uh, a prize here as well and the demise you could have say, said it was Red Bull because they, you know, didn't achieve their historical goal. But I think, honestly, this in the end doesn't mean anything for them. Red Bull is still going to win both titles. They're still dominant. They didn't fall off. It's going to be fine for them in the long run. This was a massive L for Aston Martin. This, oh, what a shocking weekend. I mean, Stroll just is is not in a good spot right now um his qualifying crash not what the team needed absolutely totaled that Aston Martin then he doesn't start the race of course Alonso everything that went wrong or could have went wrong did go wrong in the race you know he was uncharacteristic in making some mistakes when he was on the new tires the pit stop was was horrendous they got a they had a problem with the rear jack Alonso locked up and went over the line and gave himself a five second penalty the the pit line slam dunk penalty it was just bad and and they're severely off the pace I, this was a track that you think okay maybe you know Aston was great in Monaco street circuit they could be good here Aston Martin's good on their tires every characteristic that we thought we knew about the Aston Martin would you know go well here and then their weaknesses wouldn't uh you know be so much of a problem at this track they were still nowhere near the the top runners so yeah, things have gone massively backwards for this team, even worse than I think um, we we knew. So, yeah, massive, massive demise for them this weekend. They need to sort something out or, you know, be ready for next year because, God, that was a horrendous weekend. The surprise, I'll give it to K-Mag. Um, you could say Haas as well because they finally were back up there in qualifying because that was their strength early on, and then all of a sudden they weren't even qualifying high. Their race pace is still shocking, which I think is still true. Um, but because they qualified well here, and it's so hard to overtake, they actually were in with a shot. Magnussen inherited that P10 point from Russell. They should have ended up with nothing, but still the fact that Magnussen was back on top of Nico in qualifying, and he was the one to grab that point for the team, he's got to just he's got to feel great about that. The team's got to be very happy with that, and I think those threats of him potentially not returning, uh, although that has been confirmed that he's coming back, 
that is completely out of the window. I think Haas is probably feeling good about their decision right now and hoping that Magnussen can have a good end to the season. Now, let's talk about Suzuka. The Japanese Grand Prix, a favorite of the fans, a favorite of the drivers. It's where some of the most famous championship flashpoints have taken place. It's where arguably the greatest overtaking maneuver in F1 history has ever happened. It's where the win with the driver starting the furthest back in F1 history took place. And it's where our championship leader won the title last year in the most confusing and anticlimactic way possible. It's Suzuka, the Japanese Grand Prix, of course, last year was a rain-soaked race. It was red flagged for hours before um, or after the initial start and ensuing mayhem. Pierre Gasly was speeding under a red flag, which was a whole thing. There was heavy equipment on the track in the heavy rain. The visibility was terrible. Latifi made up his own corner in practice. Uh, then, you know, went on to score points in the race. I mean, Latifi scoring points in the race by itself already makes it a crazy weekend. Uh, Mick Schumacher in practice lost his F1 drive because he crashed on an in-lap. Of course, he didn't actually, you know, completely lose his drive because of that one incident. But I read the Surviving to Drive book by Gunther Steiner and he commented on Schumacher crashing on his in-lap. And I'm telling you, that had a massive, massive impact on his bid to to stay with the team so yeah last year was quite eventful this year i expect red bull to really enjoy this circuit be back on top and for mclaren to be their closest challenger for quality i'm going max verstappen on pole for the race i'm going back to max verstappen winning i think he's gonna be back with a vengeance and likely dominate to be honest uh p2 i'm going with lando though I think he finishes ahead of Checo in a tight battle for P2. And then Oscar is there, P4, ahead of the uh, the Mercedes and Ferrari battle. So, yeah, for Ferrari to be winning and in the fight for the win, back-to-back weekends here, I finally think they're going to fall back. I don't think Ferrari is back. I think these tracks play to their strengths. They, for As far as I know, they haven't introduced any upgrades. So I don't think they're just all of a sudden going to be up there every weekend. So, yeah, Ferrari versus Mercedes, though, could be kind of tasty with the constructors' uh, fight being so tight. So, yep, I'm going to say another huge weekend for McLaren here, and they're going to continue to close in on Aston Martin. Bold prediction time. I'm going to say double points for AlphaTauri. It's a home race for Yuki Sonoda. He better not DNF a third time straight because I got him in my grid rival team. And I'm going to say Liam Lawson with his Japanese super, super formula experience has a great weekend here as well. Another points position for him. They're going to be looking at this this duo and they're going to say, how can we deny uh, a return to this seat for Liam Lawson? So, yep, I'm going to say they either really close up on Alfa Romeo in the standings or potentially even overtake them in the standings. So, yeah, that would be pretty sensational. Um, Brad's bets, though. Um, review of my picks. It was, a, it was a mixed weekend because I had both Alpines to score points. Um... That was a, well, I said one of the Alpines to score points. You pick which one. I said I would probably lean towards Gasly, so that was good. Um, And it should have been both. It should have been a big, huge yes, um, plus 115, great value, but, of course, Alpine DNFs. But that was my long shot. Alpine uh, to, to DNF was on there as well, so that was a yes, then these two were huge L's. I had both Red Bulls on the podium. That was a huge L. And then over 17.5 drivers classified. It's uh, not good when one is out on the first lap and another doesn't even start the race. So just like that, I had needed to have no DNFs for the rest of the time. That did not happen. Um, although Russell was qualified, Bottas DNF'd. So... It actually was close, but yeah, um, not good. And I will say my own bets because I don't always follow the bets that I give out. Just saying. I actually threw a flyer on uh, Logan Sargent to not be classified. And I was going to be a very rich man until he made it back to the pits with his wing under his car. I was like, come on, there's got to be a ton of floor damage under there. Come on, he's, he's out of the race. They threw him back out there and he actually did battle to the end. So credit to him, but... 
that cost me a lot of money. Um, this week, I'm going to say Lando Norris on the podium. I think he continues strong form here. I think the McLaren's going to be rapid here. Gasly, points, plus 105. I like Alpine here as well. Um, Ocon was P4 last year, I believe. So, yeah, I think they continue a, a, a strong form on, on a track where they could. Uh, I don't know. It, it's tricky. I think they probably won't be as good as they were last year here. But I think they still could be um, definitely good enough for top 10. This is the one I love the most, though. Alex Albon is plus 160 to score points here. I think the Williams could easily be up there. I think they could be, or he could be ahead of both the Alpines um, and arguably fighting with Aston Martin. So I think there's a very good shot here that he just finishes 10th fastest, even if all, ever like no one retires or has a bad race or anything. I think he could just be 10th fastest on merit. Um, but I think he's also going to be at least in the top 12 where if something goes wrong for any team that he'll be there to pick up the pieces. I think he scores points for sure. So yeah, I would jump all over that. Then the other two ones, they're ones I don't like as much, but I think they're kind of interesting. Um, and over 12 seconds win margin, I think max dominates. So minus 105, I don't love the value for that. That's kind of why I don't like it but i think over 12 seconds is, is definitely uh likely um and then the other one you can only get on bet 365 uh over a quarter second quality margin i think red bull is going to be back here even in qualifying so plus 110 again not as good a value as i would have wanted for this but i think red bull could be three tenths faster than the competition here for sure then my long shot to go along with my bold prediction double points for alpha Tauri. Only plus 450, I think it's a complete ripoff, but I still think it has a pretty decent shot of happening here. Um, so so you can go for it there. Um, I know it's kind of contradictory when I say I think Alpine could score, I think Albon could score, I think Alvatari could get double points. I think they're all going to be on the running. I think Haas is nowhere, Alfa Romeo is nowhere, and Logan Sargent is nowhere. So already all those teams are going to be, you know, there or thereabouts for points. If things go wrong at the front, they could all score. So there you go. So that will do it for episode 71 of Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer, and I'll be back next week to review the Japanese Grand Prix. Will Red Bull reassert their dominance, or can the Scuderia continue this fine form and qualify on pole for the third weekend on the bounce? Goodbye.